0: This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is a social media platform designed for and by outdoorsmen. Go Wild is a place to connect with other outdoorsmen, find fishing and hunting tips and tactics, and you can even research and buy your gear. Join hundreds of thousands of other hunters, fishermen, and outdoorsmen and experience what this community is all about. Download it today at DownloadGoWild.com
1: you're listening to the wisconsin sportsman podcast your home for all things outdoors in the badger state i'm your host josh Rayleigh, and this is episode number 11 Today we're talking about the state of the whitetail herd in Wisconsin with Jeff Pritzel, the deer program specialist for the state of Wisconsin. Uh, Jeff's career spans uh, over three decades, and that certainly shows in this conversation. We cover a broad range of topics from uh, the state of the whitetail herd. We talk about CWD and its impact. We talk about wolves and their impact on the Northwoods. We talk about how legislation is made, how hunters can be more well-informed. Just a really, really great Uh, all-around podcast. We cover a lot of stuff. So I'm going to keep this introduction real, real short today. I want to go ahead and get right into the conversation. Uh, But before we do jump into it, I just want to mention uh, one thing. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast. Head over to wherever you access this podcast and leave us a review. Follow us on Instagram to keep up with our hunting season and be sure to tag me in some of your hunting photos uh, from the season so that I can stay up to date with what you are doing as well. So with that out of the way, let's kick it over to the conversation with Jeff Pritzel. All right, joining me on the show today is Jeff Pritzel, the deer program specialist for the state of Wisconsin. How's it going, Jeff?
0: Hey, it's going great, Josh. You know, as we're recording this right before the opening weekend, it's it's just that time of anticipation, um, and uh, so I, I just embracing, you know, what's what's to come here over the next couple of months.
1: Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. the The weather outside is nice and cool right now. Uh, may not be that way in a few days when opening day rolls in.
0: Yeah, that's, we deal with that every year with, you know, that, that early season, you're going to have days where, you know, the cool crisp air is what really gets us excited. But as a, if you're a full fledged all around deer hunter, it's all about adapting to the conditions that are the hand you're dealt, I guess.
1: That's right. That's right. Hey, I'm I'm used to hunting in short sleeve shirts, shorts, and water shoes on occasion to try to get through the water of Louisiana. So uh, I think I can make it just fine up here. We'll see. We'll see. Well, yeah. Jeff, uh, the position that you hold uh, as dear program specialist, uh, it's a bit of a new one for you as we talked on the phone the other day. Tell me a bit about what you do and how you got to this position. Like how did your career take the path that it has taken to get you to this point?
0: sure yeah thanks josh because yeah it is kind of an unconventional move i think for a wildlife biologist at this point in time in my career i've, I've worked for the wisconsin dnr for it'll be 30 years next month actually and I, I was hired as a field biologist um did that for the first half of my career in northeast wisconsin in manitowoc kewanee and door county i was the field biologist and and dealt with uh deer management issues at the county level then the second half of my career, I was the district supervisor for Northeast Wisconsin out of Green Bay, and what comes along with that is just an elevated um, relationship in the deer world as I oversaw you know operations at the district level. But what really um, I think is a feature in Northeast Wisconsin and being in Green Bay um, because of all of the opportunities we have up here. The 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 regular news media world really embraces outdoor coverage and being in Green Bay, we've got all four of the, the major TV networks and and when hunting season rolls around, um, they want to cover it. And so I ended up being kind of the face of uh, deer hunting in Northeast Wisconsin, just by <laughs> virtue of my, my location, I was not the deer program specialist for the state, um, but I did do it. As an acting stint uh, on a couple of occasions uh, between um, you know, previous, you know, state deer biologists, and that you know the predecessor to me, uh, Kevin Wallenfang was in this position for oh, about a decade. I don't know exactly what it was. And Kevin and I are good, close, personal friends, and have worked together for a long time. And so I, um, I, just deer was always a part of what I was doing and I really embraced the, the communication side of, of deer hunting and, and deer management. I, I, I'm careful not to describe myself as the state deer biologist. Um, and that's the typical title. And, and as if I get lumped into a group with my counterparts throughout the Midwest or even nationally you know, will be, will be you know, described as the state deer biologist. But I would contend that there's several, Really good deer biologists in Wisconsin that are far and away better scientists and deer ecologists and behaviorists, you know, than and population specialists than I am. I my role is more to coordinate, you know, the deer hunting seasons and the preparation that goes into that. Um, working first and foremost with the, the county deer advisory councils. It's a it's still a relatively new program we have here in Wisconsin, but uh, I think we're seven years into it now. But every county in the state has an advisory council of stakeholders that plays a role in making the recommendation for what the fall hunting season's gonna look like. So um, again, I worked with that at a regional level for a long time, um, but now taking that experience that I have, uh, I thought I wanted, I, I, I'd like to say I had a relative amount of success at it here in Northeast Wisconsin, and, and take that and expand it out you know, on a statewide level and serve uh, the people of Wisconsin, in that role, you know, for this next chapter in my
1: career, yeah, very good, very good, yeah, so one of the things that I have really appreciated, you know I'm a transplant, we talked about that on the phone, uh one of the things that I have so appreciated about the state of Wisconsin is uh sort of the hunting heritage that comes along with it, the tradition that comes along with it, and as I was getting you on here on this uh on the show as deer program specialist and as somebody who's been with the d n r for thirty years, right. Can you tell me a little bit about sort of how the, uh, the hunting culture has evolved over over the time that you've seen and perhaps even before? Like, like, what have deer populations looked like throughout history? What has the culture looked like throughout history? What have uh, management efforts looked like throughout the history of Wisconsin?
0: Sure, sure. I'd I, I love to because I, I love the subject myself. I'm a bit of a history buff, and I really like looking back at, you know, where we came from. To get to where we are now. And there's certain aspects of deer hunting that certainly fall into that category of history has a way of repeating itself. And sometimes we'll look at some of the issues we're dealing with today and some of the write ups that might be covering a particular deer debate. And quite honestly, sometimes you could take the a description of the something we may have just gone through in the last couple of years, and put it up against a similar news story covering deer hunting in 1947. <laughs> and and you'll read about the same. So, so that will certainly does speak to this, this culture and this legacy. And um, the strong hunting heritage that developed in Wisconsin, I think was a combination of uh, opportunity that that if we think just about deer hunting, um, the opportunity that was created, which really ties back to the, the, the great logging era of the late 1800s. And so we, we think of the first uh, as we came in, and we're, we we're, you know, Wisconsin is being settled, um, you know, by you know European ancestries that have moved in here that come from different parts of Europe. And there's, there's a tie there as well. But the era of the great logging period which really exploited the forest resources of the north um, ended up creating an opportunity because as that forest well there there was the 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 removal of the of the forest in in a very aggressive way followed by the drought uh, period of the 1930s which just supported or created the opportunity for a lot of wildfires on the landscape because there was all this slash and fuel. And so we had a lot of wildfires. So then move ahead from there in the 1940s, and the ability and the organization to suppress the wildfires, along with a a bit of a um, weather change that that took us out of that drought cycle, allowed the forest to recover. And so now you've got this landscape of young forest on the lands that obviously, if you follow and your, you know, deer, deer management, um, deer tend to do better in a young forest than an old forest, and they do better on the edge and, and all that type of stuff. So things were just set up for a, a real um, boom in, in deer numbers. Hmm. And then you combine that with um, the end of World War II and a, a whole bunch of Wisconsinites that, that are coming home with a new familiarity with with firearms, you know, from the training that they had as in, in the service and and now we're in a situation of, hmm, well, now, you know, what else could I do with this, you know, Bramington Springfield or whatever, you know, type of a rifle that they have got become familiar with. And the idea of being able to go up North and take advantage of what people are hearing about is great deer hunting, um, which really centered was based on these logging camps that turned into deer camps hmm. and, um, and that's really where it got started and and I think part of it also um in Wisconsin we have a real strong um, german ethnic ethnic heritage you know from our that's my ancestry and and there's a strong hunting culture you know in germany that i think you know was expressed then here in wisconsin and and other areas of the country of course but that really created a a perfect combination of opportunity and interest and and training. And so we just went through this a number of decades of this, um, the heritage of the up north deer camp in Wisconsin. And so that's really what was driving it it, uh, in the forties, fifties, sixties and seventies. And And then um, we saw landscape or land uses and, change, landscapes change, and where deer were, had been pretty much extirpated from the southern half of the state, um, that flipped. And uh, as we started to manage the land in a way that that wasn't quite as, I guess you'd describe it as abusive, (laughs) um, natural landscapes, you know, started to recover, and deer came along with it. And so now, and this is, and when I say now as if it's new for the last 30 years, um, deer have really flourished in the southern half of the state. Um, and again, a creature of the edge, a, a very adaptable, um, animal that can take advantage of a lot of different situations. And so now we've got, um, opportunities statewide. And whenever we talk about deer hunting in Wisconsin, it really does have to get divided up into two, and there's kind of two separate stories going on. And that is the, deer hunting of, of the forested regions and then the farmland region, and, and we divide the state up into four zones two of which are the northern and central forest and then there's the central and southern farmland zones and and they really have their own separate paths um, um and different opportunities
1: hmm. yeah so i want to i want to step back just a second because i want to hear a little bit more about something that you mentioned i'm i'm I make my home in the southern half of the state in one of the southern farmland zones. And you mentioned that uh, practices changed in the south and sort of a resurgence of deer numbers came back. Can you tell me a little bit about sort of how, like, what were some of the practices that were changed from a management perspective um, sure. to to increase that?
0: Yeah. Well, and when I'm thinking about it is the, the deer management is, is probably incidental to just the land use changes as far as when, you know, our early agricultural history in Wisconsin was was wheat farming, mm-hmm. and um, and then as as livestock became a bigger bigger part of that picture, um, one of the big things that shifted was that the, the wooded lands that were that were remaining that hadn't been converted to agriculture, were were utilized as pasture land because it was just that sense of trying to use everything you could and put everything into service. I mean the the wood woodland areas were pastured, um, and then every area that was tillable, you know, was you know was under plow, and um, just then as practices shift, and one of the big changes was really uh, the, the ceasing of, of pasturing in the woodlands. That probably had a lot to do with the ability for the landscape to now support deer, and has a lot to do with why we have turkeys back in Wisconsin too. I mean, there was an attempt to Bring turkeys back to Wisconsin for over a hundred years, you know, while they were absent. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, well, for a number of reasons, but most importantly, the origin of the stock of truly wild birds that came from Missouri in the 1970s. But it took until then that the those habitats had recovered to a point where they actually could support, you know, turkey populations again. So of course, deer and turkey get along really well on very similar landscapes. So, you know, both of those species doing much, much better on that landscape than they could have done, you know, 40, 50 you know, years ago.
1: Sure, sure. I, I've, I've really admired, so I look at the state of Wisconsin and in and, and the little bit of reading that I've been able to do since moving here, uh, you know, I see things like the, like the deer population and the turkey population and the bear population and the sandhill crane population. And it's like, there are a lot of success stories when it comes to conservation and wildlife here in Wisconsin.
0: Well, yeah. And we can tie that back to another really important part of Wisconsin's tie to wildlife conservation. And, and that's, you know, of course, Aldo Leopold and all the work he did here in Wisconsin and, and things that he, um, well, he brought to fruition in Wisconsin. He did a lot of his learning in other parts of the country. And then we were just fortunate that he landed here in Wisconsin. And then we we're able to put those concepts, principles to work and, and because we were so close to that. But the one Leopold's very simple, definition of conservation was the goal of getting humans to live in harmony with the land. And so if we're successful at that, that's where you see these are all the side effect benefits. Well, whether it's a side effect or purposeful, yeah, the recovery of all these species, uh, I, I, I look at it as a measurement of that, is it successful in conservation? Are we living in harmony with the land? Which means can we do as humans, what we want to and need to do um, while also allowing other things to happen and natural processes to happen and that we're not doing what we want to or need to do at the expense of the natural world that that the natural world can flourish side by side with what we're doing
1: yeah are you are you seeing any any changes to farming practice uh, here lately that are having an impact
0: um, well there's always um, shifts going on and and that's part of what uh, to me amazes me about our you know, wild resources, how adaptable they are, but um, uh, probably the biggest thing that has an influence on on wildlife related to the farming is what happens in, in the, at a national level with the Farm Bill. So, you know, in terms of programs that, influence how the land is managed uh, whether there's you know set aside acres and and sensitive lands taken out of production that then turn into you know permanent cover and and habitat Uh, that's um, that's one aspect of it and we see things you know different species uh, rise and fall you know with that Um, again deer being relatively uh, adaptable I you don't see as much of a shift but you know pheasants are a great example in Wisconsin where when we at the boom of the CRP um, era that got started in the late 1980s and really flourished in the 1990s, um, our wild pheasant population actually, you know, grew nicely. And as things shifted and acres came out of set aside um, as a CRP, and it's still out there. And and it looks like we're turning back towards more acres going back into set aside. But um, the, the pheasant numbers absolutely followed Um, the amount of undisturbed, you know, set aside open land. And so there's huge, that's an example where there's a lot of uh, influence. Um, The other thing I think that's, that I'm just starting to um, think about, and others are are too, is that um, obviously in the agricultural part of the state, deer and turkeys um, benefit quite a bit from, from uh, waste grain, you know, that's left over after the harvest season. And um, as is, True with everything else, it's in advances in technology. Um, at least my own personal experience, what I'm seeing in terms of the improvement in efficiency of the harvesting equipment means there's less waste grain left over after it's um, um, all done. And and so the efficiencies in, har- in, in um, farming practices, I, I wonder how that's going to influence in the future as far as um, whereas uh, you know how many calories of soybeans that were left in the field after the harvest is over uh, five years ago as compared to this year. Um, so that's something to keep in mind uh, going down the road which makes us remember that the the wild food and the wild um, habitat is, is still critically important. We can't put all of our eggs in the basket of uh, well the, these animals are just going to flourish because they'll always have um, ample, you know, food resources, you know, in the agricultural landscape that, that may
1: not always be the case. Sure. Sure. All right. So there are a few things uh, about the way Wisconsin, uh, works when it comes to natural resources that I don't quite understand as a bit of an outsider. You mentioned one of them earlier, that is the County Deer Advisory Councils. Uh, there's another one, the Conservation Congress, and then there's the DNR that plays into this as well. And I'm sure other groups or, uh, interest groups, potentially. Uh, Can you explain to me sort of how all of these things work together?
0: Sure. Um, So on paper, anyhow, the the nuts and bolts of it are that the the Wisconsin Conservation Congress was created, um, again, an initiative that Elder Leopold and some others started, recognizing that to truly have conservation working and be embraced by the citizenry, uh, they have to have, be directly plugged in and directly engaged, and their um, enlightenment of the issues needs to be raised to where they are are willingly um, going along with the agency. In other words, that if that, as much as we in the in the agencies, uh, and I have the opportunity to have a job like I do because of the work that you know Leopold got started with with game management um, he actually was not a very big fan of government led wildlife conservation. You know, he always, he understood that ultimately if it's, if conservation can only happen through regulation and mandates, it's, it's not going to be successful. Um, we need the community to embrace it and do so, you know, willingly. And so in one way of connecting the community, Uh, to the decision making process was the creation of the Conservation Congress and it's unique to Wisconsin. There there may be other states that have a similar type process set up but I still believe we're the only state that actually has uh, a Conservation Congress. Each county has a delegation that's elected and they function just like a Congress in terms of introducing rule proposals and running them through committee um, and through the leadership and then um, those become uh, potentially, you know, influencing, you know, how the agency um, accepts, you know, any kind of rule changes. So the Natural Resources Board in Wisconsin, which is our Conservation Commission, you know, ultimately sets policy, approves rule changes, and the Conservation Congress has um, um, equal standing essentially, or I don't know if you could say equal, but independent standing to the Conservation Commission to the Natural Resources Board. So they um, provide their own input directly to the board. Uh, and sometimes it complements what the department is doing and proposing, and sometimes it doesn't. And that's, it's important that, that um, it, when it doesn't, um, it just reflects that there's work to be done. As far as understanding what we think is um, in the best interests of stewardship of the resource. Directly versus the social considerations, and that's what that's what Congress you know brings in. And so then, the 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 county deer advisory councils you know were created um, as all as a response to concern um, that again that the agency's influence on the outcomes of what the deer season was going to look like felt too strong. To those, you know, in leadership positions and, and political positions, and so the advisory councils, um, which are hosted by the Conservation Congress, I guess is a way to say it. The, the Conservation Congress delegates of the county um, are the chair and coach, vice chair of the of these councils, and then the other stakeholders are just citizen members, you know, that represent the groups. So, so the Congress plays a big role in in that again, alongside the department to bring this together and what we end up doing and this is something having talked to my colleagues in other states um, that they'll point out is that wisconsin does embrace um, public input at a level that is um, exceptional um and 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 that there's two sides to that you know the good side is is you we have a tremendous amount of opportunity as a citizen to provide input um, the other side of that is of course, not everyone agrees and, and so you get this great mixed bag of input and then what do you do with it? And, and sometimes that can be really challenging and, and uh, I've had colleagues from other states who just say, boy, you guys really make it hard on yourself <laughs> with, with all <laughs> of the public input you, you seek. But it, but we do um, value that quite a bit. Um, the challenging part of it is is, is again. Not everyone, and and it's again, specific to deer hunting. One of the things I've been thinking about as I've been in this job and how I think about um, working with the deer hunting community is that I've come to realize there's no such thing as an average deer hunter. To to approach this as if everybody wants the same thing um, is just, is folly. You know, it's not, that's just not the way it is. We have over a half a million, you know, deer hunters in Wisconsin. And so you get a lot of different opinions. And so in in any process that we go through and we get to the end point, there are going to be those individuals that it, it didn't turn out the way they wanted it to. Yeah. And, then, and then how they um, then react or respond to that oftentimes, you know, again, is what becomes this um, gets uh, portrayed in a divisive manner again so going full circle to your original question about some of the history and culture this has been going on since the 1940s probably always will and, and it's just a reflection of the, the passion and the interest the strong passions and interests we have in wisconsin so there will always be that degree of of, of tension um, about people really wanting uh, the best experience that, that they can envision for themselves yet not everyone has the same vision
1: sure sure and you know one of the things that I heard you say on a different podcast was uh, basically saying you you see the the tension that this can bring as a positive thing right like having all these different streams of input and the tension that that can create as as actually being a positive thing for us what do you what do you mean by that well
0: I guess I ga- I gauged that the presence of that tension is is a measurement of that engagement and passion and strong desires that um, if it, and it's how we manage, how we work with that and manage that. Um, if if that fades away, it's not, it's probably not because we're doing everything right and everyone's happy. It, if it fades away, it's probably because people are losing interest in engagement. And so that that just comes with the territory. And I think on one hand, if we want to claim that, That deer hunting in Wisconsin is is a part of our cultural fabric to the point where it's, it's important. And it's one of the, I mean, it's, it's the it's the headlines and the news media during seasons and stuff. Then the um, The politics that come along with that is just part of what comes along with that. We, there are, there are, you'll hear oftentimes hear people with frustration of, wow, we got to get the politics out of natural resources. Well, if, if if the natural resources are that important and that that part of our fabric that's how we navigate our, our future and and so the politics comes along with it so that's one of the things i it's how do you work with that as opposed to uh, trying to trying to avoid it and, and that's that's part of it i guess that i embrace that, that is what makes me hopefully a good fit for this position. <laughs>
1: Very good. Yeah. So as I as I listen to this and the answers that you gave, I, I hope that the uh, the person that doesn't exist, the average deer hunter, I, I I hope that that whoever's listening to this is sitting here saying to themselves, you know what. After hearing this and realizing, you know, my preferences or my, the experience that I'm after, I want to be more involved. I want to be more informed. Like, what what can I do? So, what what would you tell that person that says, you know, what I I do want to be more involved. I, I do want to give some input. I do want to uh, be more well informed as to the way that uh, the way that decisions are made or policy is made.
0: Sure. Well, the the main thing is to have an awareness of these county deer advisory councils. I mm-hmm. I really like this process that was set up. My biggest frustration with it in the seven years we've been doing it is the lack of public attendance. You know, at at the meetings. Um, so
1: these are open to the public.
0: Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And, and of course, in the last year and a half, because of COVID, we've had to go virtual with everything, which has created some challenges. But it also did expose. Um, the process to more people because um, there was an expanded, you know, online virtual access, you know, to the meetings and to the process. And in year, in in, uh, 2020, we saw a big uptick in participation. Um, That now here in 2021, that faded off again. But what happens at these CDAC meetings is a lot of really good discussion that is background information as to why things are the way they are or why the, the advisory council, given all of the things that they have to consider makes the recommendation they do, not in, just like the department would. And so one of the things I've observed um, is that if you take, and that's one of the challenges of taking in public input, any one individual person, uh, as they provide their public input, sh- you know, as you would expect them to, is gonna advocate for their own interests. Um and, and that's what they should do. But then you pool that all together. And so the difference between the response you get from each individual that is advocating uh, from their perspective, what's in their best interest, versus you give all of that pooled information to a group of people, put them then put them in a room, and they have a couple of hours to think about and consider all of the options and and, and trade-offs, they output or their result is going to be different, likely to be different than what just raw data is of each individual, you know, person's input. And the, so getting back to your your, your question, though, part of the challenge is such a small percentage of the total deer hunting population participates that it, that always becomes kind of, a, all right, how do you weight this? Uh, because you've got, um, in many cases, you know, less than 1% of the deer hunting population, you know, participating. But that's the same with with any democratic public process of, of you know, it's a it's a balance of well the those that show up are the ones that get all the shots or have the influence and then the, those that don't show up you're left with the question of well are they not here because they're content and happy um, with the way things are or is it just a measurement of apathy? And, and so, what do you do with that? And so, but the process is set up then that these these advisory council members um, are to represent their stakeholders. And so, um, if if any individual, and it leans heavily, of course, towards you know deer hunting and deer hunters' interests, but there's agriculture and there's forestry, there's even transportation in terms of the, the, the consideration for. Uh, um, safety on the roadway of you know with car deer accidents and so each of these um, councils you know is charged with taking all of this into consideration and then coming up with a recommendation for how they feel uh, um, they should try to influence the trends in in, in deer numbers uh, collectively and um so by all means i think people that um participate in the meetings you know then do have a, come away with it with a greater Understanding of oh this is what all goes into this, you know, behind the scenes and uh, the more people that do appreciate that the more um, They can then go into their hunting season and in my ultimate goal is that I want people to be going into the hunting season. They deserve to be enjoying it and looking forward to it and just embracing whatever adventure and memory might come forth that we can't predict yet rather than going out. Grumbling or feeling like that they they don't listen to me, you know, because the way I wanted it to turn out isn't what happened.
1: You kind of led right into where we're going next. We are uh, we are two days away, two full days from opening day. Is that right?
0: Yeah, we're we're real
1: close. So I wondered if you could give me kind of a thirty thousand foot view of kind of the state of the deer herd here in Wisconsin. Like, tell me a bit about. Uh, how's the herd doing, like health wise? Like, what are some things that are concerning you? What are some things that you're like? Oh, this looks really promising in this area, and maybe you could break that down by region for us. Sure, sure.
0: Um, so yeah, when you well, when you look at it at the thirty thousand foot level, um, that's it, I like that. That's the way we are charged with looking at it as an agency, right? And um, so when we talked about. The health of the herd, you know, there, there's two ways to look at that. One is to just say, well, the health, how well is the herd doing? Is it trending up? Is it trending down? Is it stable? And then of course, there's the how. What's the health of the herd, literally in terms of the, the, the health as it relates to diseases and those types of issues. And of course, chronic, chronic wasting disease is always on the forefront in that discussion. So I'll, I'll get to that in, in a little bit. But in general, across the state, we're looking at, um, now we've had two relatively mild winters. Um, That has more of an influence in the north than it does in in the farmland, but but that has not been um, uh, an impact that has suppressed, you know, the deer population. The the harvest, looking at the past, harvest the past couple of years, um, buck harvest, which tends to be a pretty good barometer of what the deer population overall is doing, although it's, it's not as, as tight of a comparison as it used to be, and maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. But the um, the, the buck harvest trend is going up. Um, we we had a dip in 2019 um, due to a couple of factors that may or that may not be related to the actual deer population, and that's this phenomena we run into every seven years with the shift of the calendar, and it and it um, enhances. the the opening weekend of the gun season, which is of course our biggest spike in in deer harvest as it relates to the breeding period or the rut. So 2019, we had the latest possible gun season opener. And and there was a dip in the harvest that, that, you know, pretty much relates to dip in deer activity as we've got further away from the rut. And now every year, the opening day of the gun season will be a day earlier and a day earlier and a day earlier until we go through that cycle again. But last year, in most of the state, we saw a nice recovery or increase in, in the buck harvest. And when we when we look at the, the harvest last year and put that into our population models, it would indicate that there should be even more bucks on the landscape this fall. So in general, you know, opportunity uh, should be even better than it was last year. Um, in the, and so in the Northern forest, that's you know, the issue, the areas that are more sensitive to you know, winter influences um but we've got um we've got a kind of a broad array of approaches in, in the, across the north from some counties that are in a position to feel that they're pretty being more liberal with um antlerless deer permits which just increases you know overall opportunity to to put a deer in a freezer of course and and some areas especially in the northeast part of the state um don't feel that they're quite there yet so they're still being pretty conservative in antlerless um Harvest opportunity, and, and as is in, in North Central Wisconsin, it's it's kind of the case case as well. Um, in the farmland portion of the state, honestly, it just sounds like a broken record for the last twenty years because we've got highly productive deer populations. With our biggest challenge is to try to get an annual harvest that keeps up with that annual productivity, um, and so we have more counties this year in the farmland that are participating in the extended hunting opportunities, the late season, um, the the holiday hunt between Christmas and New Year's, which is a antlerless firearm season, and then the January extension um, of archery and crossbow hunting through the end of January, more counties are are participating in that than ever before. But that's at the end of the deer season, we're talking at the beginning (laughs) up here right now. And, um, so in general, I just look at all the arrows are pointing in the right direction. Um, things were pretty dry in the state, um, and and I think early and midsummer there was some concern about was drought going to have an, an impact. Um, it, in Wisconsin, we're not like the western states where um, drought really is going to have an impact on let's say for example fawn survival you know literally you know the deer population we've got just you know enough water resources that that rarely if ever becomes an issue in a state like wisconsin but the dry conditions certainly does influence the vegetation state and so where we're at with agricultural you know crop harvest cycles natural food sources um but things are looking pretty good. I mean I, agricultural practices I think are on schedule, hearing a lot of reports of, of good acorn crops. Um, acorns dropping early this year and so that's something folks need to be considering that um, right now, uh, which is not often the case I think of at least in my neck of the woods that that the deer are going to be uh, keying in on acorns this early in the season, but that certainly seems to be the case in some parts of the state. So um, I think again all the arrows I think are pointing towards uh, a real optimistic deer season this year.
1: Excellent. So what what then have we seen so things are looking up for for 2021 deer season. Um what have we seen regarding license sales and hunter participation over the last couple of years? I know uh there was a sort of a boom with 2020, is that right? Uh in license sales.
0: Yeah, just like everything else, you know, we have that that COVID effect, um, we got a bump, not so much in deer license sales as a percentage compared to some of the other things, but that's just a a factor of our sales are so high to begin with. And we're talking about, you know, 600 plus thousand individuals purchasing over 800,000 licenses. And so it takes a lot of uh, people, you know, adding to that to to make much of a percentage change so where you might have heard that you know this you know you know participation of this or that bumped up 10% or 15% i think in 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 deer hunting in wisconsin i think we got about a maybe a 3% bump at most but that's a lot when when you're talking about those those kind of numbers um the now whether we'll see this year whether that sustains or not and that's a big discussion that's been going on in the world of our three across the board, whether it's hunting or fishing or whatnot, is, is, is how do we uh, retain that bump that happened last year? Um, you know, our our big discussion in Wisconsin has been, you know, aside from we've got high participation rates has been this shift of um, effort from the nine day gun season to the archery and crossbow hunting. Um, and people discussing, you know, whether that's good, bad, or or otherwise. I mean, it's a it's not something that's that fresh or new. This has been a trend that's been going on for 25 years, and it simply, to me, reflects an increase in interest of people embracing deer hunting and wanting to be able to do it for more days over more periods of time. And um, so we're we've been seeing this this increase in uh, both vertical bow, and now we're uh, you know, five, six years into, you know, the crossbow opportunity. And again, that's not something that's unique to Wisconsin. That's, you know, been across the country, other than, you know, there's a few states out there that maybe still really are separating, you know, that opportunity, you know, crossbow from vertical bow. But um, we're, um, we are seeing um, more effort, more hundred days, and more deer, you know, being harvested with archery equipment as opposed to, you know, firearm equipment. And, Some will, you know, again, discuss, is that a positive thing or negative thing or something to be concerned about? Or is it just a shift in culturally how we're doing it? And is it something we need to try to manipulate? Um, Or do we just let it happen?
1: All right. We're heading into deer season. We've got uh, an incredibly large population when it comes to the number of hunters here in the state of Wisconsin. I want to touch on one issue that I think probably a lot of hunters have on their mind and something that is kind of a hot-button issue, meaning that uh, if you want to argue about something, you can bring up religion, you can bring up politics, and you can bring up CWD. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, what are we learning right now about CWD? I was reading something the other day, and uh, I can't remember. You may have even mentioned this on the phone as we talked just a little bit. Um, if, if you look at states like Wisconsin could be considered like one of the hotspots for CWD in the country, realistically. So what are, what are we learning about CWD? Like what does the science show us about getting control of the issue? Uh, what, what can hunters do to be part of a solution? Why is it so divisive?
0: Sure. <laughs> sure. Well, I, so the the divisive nature of it I think is you know probably ties to the the perception of what it means to my long-term future. Um and and you can look at that as either I don't see this as a threat to my long-term future or my kids' future of deer hunting and not worth doing anything that's going to negatively impact my present hunting situation. Um, for the sake that hopefully it'll be that it might be better in the future if I don't perceive a risk, you know that it's going to be a problem in the future. Um, And one of the challenges there is that this is such a slow moving um, uh, issue or you want to call it when when CWD was first discovered in Wisconsin back in 2002 based on the 2001 um, hunting season. there you know a lot. Of, it pulled in a lot of attention, and I remember some um, information coming out of UW Madison from from some wildlife population dynamics you know specialists. I don't I don't even remember the details, but I just remember them saying in 2002 that this is going to take 20 to 25 years before it's going to show up as a population influencing you know level you know type of a and until that happens people can see a tangible um effect it's going to be hard to get people on board with doing something now to, to prevent that. so that's one approach the, the other angle and the white why it's divisive is for someone that would take the opposite opinion and say um i feel this is a risk to my the next generation's deer hunting and it's my responsibility to do something about it now, so that 20, 25 years from now, they aren't looking back and saying, well, if Wisconsin would have only done this, you know, we wouldn't be in this situation. That's the hard part of this, is that it is about not being in a position literally decades from now, you know, looking back, going, wishing we would have done something different. And so doing what we can do now, um, Proactively or preventatively. So, the one thing we're so the question that always comes down to is Wisconsin managing CWD or monitoring CWD? And and quite honestly, right now we're putting a lot of effort because that's what we can do and what we're essentially uh, um, supported to do by the public is to monitor, you know, CWD um, and take some steps as we can to limit its rate of spread and its um, uh, rate of infection so that we're buying time that whether however many years down the road it is if there's some new revelation in what we can do that might um, call, you know allow us to suppress the disease we're in a better position to do that than if we had done nothing so as it stands right now wisconsin has the best database of tracking how cwd is behaving in the deer population so that and that is very important, so that it can inform future decision making. So that's that's the as, aspect of just learning about what is CWD doing, and we're we're coming to the end of a very important four-year or so research project in the core area of CWD in Wisconsin, and it's going to take another year or so of, of um, wrapping up and 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 then running the numbers to. St- before outputs are going to start coming out to say, you know, here's what here's what we're going to we can expect to see, you know, with with chronic wasting disease and its impact on on the, on the population. Um, but we're starting, so we're almost 20 years in in that core area, right? So, and we're just starting to see potentially, um, as I talked to some landowners in that area, uh, recognition of that you know the way we've been approaching our deer management for the past 10 years or so or 15 years is just that it's a way of the past it's not the way of our future we've got to change how we go about you know doing doing our our how we approach whether it's um a, you know buck age class management or those types of things it just changes how you, how you think about it for sure the the, the other thing at the moment is Uh, that we can do is about um, limiting the rate of spread, and or minimizing locations, what could be the next spark that we don't know about. I I like to describe chronic wasting disease uh, in Wisconsin with an analogy of of a wildfire. Everyone's familiar with the the situations that are going on out west with the fires and and how these wildfires move. There's the the head of the fire that just creeps, you know, forward. Um, but then there's the the embers that are blown out and, and sparked out and, and start new, new fires. And, and if you think about it, you know, CWD can operate much in the same way. And so one of the things we really can try to do is manage those sparks um, by catching them as soon as they, they hit. And uh, more importantly, minimizing the chance that if a spark did the disease agent inadvertently gets introduced to a new area that it can catch, you know, and turn turn into something. So the way I think about that is, um, and I talk about that with some of these CDACs in Northeast Wisconsin that have really high deer densities and fortunately don't have chronic wasting disease. Um, I try to liken it to looking at deer as the fuel um, as in if they're pine needles, Um, as it relates to sparks. So we have areas of the state that I would describe as a pile of pine needles, you know, just waiting, you know, for that spark to hit. And it's gonna be much more likely for the disease to catch and and then flourish on one of those pile of pine needles as opposed to areas where, you know, deer densities are lower or more in balance with the landscape. Um, So that's one of the arguments for in some counties where uh, we've got, you know, deer densities that are pushing 70, 80, 90 deer per square mile. Um, That's the condition we had in in, uh, that Western Dane, uh, Eastern Sauk, or Iowa County, where it got, you know, that initiated there, I mean, really high deer densities. Um, And so that just increases the likelihood of it, of the disease catching.
1: Yeah. So in in response to the caricature, so I've heard people talk about it and they kind of say, well, they don't know what to do with it, so they just want to kill all the deer. How is that a solution? What I hear you saying, though, is that there's wisdom in reducing the amount of fuel. So if we bring the herd down to a more sustainable level, then the fire is less likely to catch.
0: Um, Right. Yeah. That's that's again, it's all about risk management. Um, and, and minimizing those risks where we can again that's why we have the discussion that well there are certain tangible things we do with whether it's you know baiting and feeding um, and then carcass disposal and there's a, a you know move you know carcass movement you know trying to minimize exposure you're trying to reduce risk in whatever way you can and I often said you know even if you t- again take take the disease issue, off the table, because because one of the things that, I mean, if you're dealing with a disease crisis, um, it oftentimes, you know, one of your biggest challenges is population density, because that just allows the disease to move from individual to individual. And there's lots of different examples you can make, you know, along with that. So yeah, the principle of, and real us back 20 years and the initial rollout that Wisconsin um, reaction we had when CWD was first discovered, you know, was this, hey, let, can we snuff the spark out, which means, you know, can we, you know, basically remove the deer from a pretty from an you know, area. significant area in hopes that it doesn't spread, recognizing that that's going to be a sacrifice, you know, within that area that may last a decade or who knows how long, but we we know at some point in time that you know the deer would, would certainly recover, you know, and, and move back into the area. That approach, you know, for a couple of different reasons didn't work. And one of the carryover effects was this attitude that people are, you know, saying, well, the DNR just wants to kill as many deer as possible or kill all the deer. Um it's not about, you know, killing all of the deer and and really compromising, you know, the Deer hunting experience for people today but it is about just this basic principle of reducing the number of individuals um reduces the risk of transmission as one thing that you can do now if you take that take the whole disease consideration off the table there are plenty of other reasons to also pursue managing that deer density at a level that is you know getting more in balance with the landscape and the positive you know Trade-offs that you get from that, and so there's 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 multiple reasons to uh, pursue uh, a deer density that is um, again it's that seeking that balance between uh, a satisfying hunting opportunity, uh, deer you know wildlife watching opportunity, but yet not having the, the Negative impacts of an overabundant deer population, whether that's ecologically, or from property or agricultural damage standpoint, or or you know travel safety, all those type of aspects. So, no shortage of stuff to talk about, and that's where these again these CEDCs <laughs> these CEDCs come into the role of representing all these different stakeholder groups to have these discussions.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so what do, what do we need to be doing then as a hunter, just just to bring it down? Away from all the the controversy or anything like that, the average guy on the street, what does he need to do? He needs to go out, maybe shoot an extra doe this year, maybe get his deer tested.
0: Yeah. So, um, so that part of it, the, the 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 choice to you know to pull the trigger or not, it can be very local, and I'll you know get into that in just a second. But I think first and foremost, the the thing that we need to do is is keep deer hunting because the last thing we we need. In terms of again disease management and, and having a population that's that's uh, healthy and vigorous as opposed to escalating to the point where each individual animal is just uh, stressed, you know, because there's so many of them. Is that you know to continue to, to hunt continue to harvest deer, and then yes get those deer tested so that you can make a. Uh, for personally, can make a, a decision as to whether or not that animal, you know, is going to be consumed or not, and that's a personal decision based on, you know, guidance that's provided. Um, but then, from our standpoint, from the agency standpoint, again, at that higher level, um, it is to be able to trace and track, you know, what that disease is doing in the state to help, you know, uh, inform our management decisions down the road. But you touched on that—that that, that, that the eternal challenge of deer management is always talking about as a matter of scale you know when they when i talk about deer management it's at the countywide level or maybe even larger but from the deer hunter's perspective that scale comes down to maybe only 40 acres or you know mm. the size of a farm or, or, or a township and so what i describe as the condition or the situation at the county-wide level or the unit level oftentimes isn't mirrored at each local level and so we always will run into situations where, uh, you know, certain individuals on their chunk of land that they're connected to have an experience that does not is not reflected by what they're hearing us talk about at a larger scale, and it's understandable mm-hmm. that then they are going to push back and say, "Well, that's not the way it is in my my place." <laughs> um, so that aspect of should you shoot an additional deer or take another deer um, certainly is conditional. Um, and it can be even at the local level, but, um, when I look at that at the county level or the unit level, um, I'm looking at, um, if it's a deer management unit that has an objective to either maintain its current population or, or decrease its population, um, that is accomplished by our harvest ratio, um, of what I, what I mean by that is, is the ratio of harvest between bucks and antlerless deer. And so we've been tracking that for a long time and have the ability to, to basically look at for, for how many, every buck that you know dies at the hand of hunters um, in that unit, how many antlerless deer. And so we can come up within the county uh, kind of a general benchmark of, you know if we want the population to do X, either grow, be stable or, or decline, um, we need to address that antlerless harvest ratio, and oftentimes in the farmland, you know, we're looking at wanting to have a two-to-one ratio. In other words, for every buck that gets harvested, um, two antlerless deer should get harvested, and we mm. very rarely hit that mark. Um, so, yeah, there's always the opportunity in um, in, in much of the, the state where we have um, population objectives to stabilize or or decrease the population to probably take more antlerless deer than we, than we have been.
1: What do people need to be doing at, at from the time of the kill? I, I hear you say that, you know, there's um, obviously get your deer tested. Then what happens next with the meat? If the deer is positive, that's a personal decision. Um, what do people need to be aware of? <clears throat> Let's say they've harvested a deer uh, and they're going to dispose of the carcass. Do they need to be, Careful in the way that they handle it. Do they need to be careful in the way that they dispose of it?
0: Yeah. One of the easiest ways we can prevent inadvertently introducing the disease agent to a new area is to not take the, the, the waste or the remains after butchering a deer and and just putting it out on, on the back forty. Um, and that has been a common practice. And and it's and in many cases a fulfilling practice. I've always felt that taking the the parts of the animal that I couldn't utilize and putting them back out in the natural world to be recycled, you know, back into nature was an important part of the process. It felt wrong to me to toss that into the waste, into the garbage, into the dumpster. Um, that thinking has changed, you know, because of chronic wasting disease, where on one hand, I thought I was doing better by the natural world to return the, the remains you know, to nature that now I might be actually you know, introducing a risk. And so that needle has has moved to where the, the responsible thing to do is to you know, make sure that those waste products do go into the waste stream. So that's, you've seen over the last couple of years an enhancement in that message, uh, and growth and the opportunity to dispose of deer waste you know, properly with the placement, strategic placement of dumpsters. Um not through the entire deer season, um, really keyed in on the gun season because that's when the highest volume is generated, of course. And to have a dumpster that is receiving, you know, animal parts this time of the year when the temperature is what it is, just is not going to work either. So for for us early season archers, um, and really throughout the archery and Crossbow season leading up to the gun season, you're on your own to to do that. But uh, making sure that that uh, the, the animal waste you know gets landfilled, um, and, and I mean another option is is to on your own is to bury it. But to do that properly is a pretty significant effort, um, and it's probably easier to find a way to get it into the landfill systems.
1: All right, so we'll we'll leave behind the uh, the controversial topic of CWD and we'll move on to something that, uh, is not controversy at all. I want to talk about wolves up North. I, uh, I figured there was a trick. In that. <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right, so, bring it on.
1: W- one of the things that I have loved. So <clears throat> growing up, um, my dad, uh, hunted in Michigan and I grew up hearing of his stories of, of going up to the hunting camp, right. And, and sort of that strong deer hunting tradition, something like I had never seen before growing up in Alabama. Um, and then I, I move up here to Wisconsin and they have much the same thing, uh, as Michigan, this strong deer camp, uh, tradition, everyone heads North to the deer woods. And, uh, one, as someone who hunts in the South, I, I kind of just kindly remind people like, you know, there's deer everywhere down here, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you, you know, you don't have to drive for three hours. They're in your front yard. Uh, but one of, the, one of the things that they have talked about here lately is the sort of um, the decline of what they saw as the glory days of hunting in the Northwoods. They talk about times when there were more deer. They talk about times when the hunting was better. And they are really pointing at uh, the reintroduction of the wolf. And so tell me a bit about uh, what's the impact the wolf population is having and uh, what's, what's your take on all of that? Sure. Yeah,
0: I I can give you a couple of observations that I to hopefully help kind of put it in in perspective, and um, so we we talked about this earlier, just in terms of the history of of deer hunting in Wisconsin and that that period of time in the north where it was just it was the place to be, um, but that was a window in time that was created, you know, because of certain conditions that allowed the north woods to be prime deer habitat if you want to describe it that in terms of the ability to support higher deer densities you know that that was a window and that window um really isn't there anymore on a permanent basis now we it can it can be recreated and it is recreated on localized levels as it relates to how the forest is being managed in terms of timber harvest or or even in some cases today you know uh, a wildfire that might affect an area locally, it might enhance the habitat, you know, long term for deer but but overall, the the carrying capacity of the north uh, isn't what it was um, back in the the heyday. Um, We get windows of opportunity for the deer herd to rebound or erupt as as Leopold would put it when we get some mild winters or some successive mild winters. But the history that we've seen over the over the last number of decades is that that those eruptions are not sustainable. Um they're all, they're going to run until the next, you know, uh, you know severe winter comes. But then there's there are these other factors, you know, that that have changed over time. So let's talk about wolves and, and predation in in general and it's where it fits in, in all of this. And so um again there going back to us tracking the deer herds through the information that the hunters give us um, through the hunting harvest and the ability then to use that harvest those harvest numbers to to um, recreate what the deer population was before the hunting season and then after the hunting season what we what we can do with that is assign to each deer management unit a growth rate an expected you know this herd grows at this level and that growth rate is driven Driven by the the carrying capacity or the potential for the annual productivity in in the form of fawns to survive to be adult deer, and that growth rate and survival of fawns in the north or in the forested parts of the state is not what it is in the farmland. Never has been. Well, never has been. It uh, you know it was probably at its peak again decades ago, but. So, for example, you know, the, a fawn in the north has about half the chance of a fawn in the farmland to make it, you know, to to adulthood. And so, the the first thought is, well, well, there's your problem. Um, if we could change that, if we could increase that fawn's survival rate to match what happens in southern Wisconsin, well, wouldn't that solve all of our issues? And the, unfortunately, the short answer is no, because even if those fawns survived to adulthood, the habitat Caring capacity can't keep up with that kind of productivity, and so the the, the bottom line is that deer population has an annual mortality rate. Uh, so, in other words, this many deer are going to be, you know, are going to survive and be alive, you know, at the end of the end of the year, end of the annual cycle, however you want to describe it. And the factors of mortality can shift, um, whether it's us harvesting the deer or it's natural predation, or it's starvation, or it's, you know, whatever those factors are, those mortality factors will adjust, you know, against each other. And so of course the, the, as it, the the, um, approach when it comes to thinking about natural predation uh, on that deer population is well, that part of the mortality formula is cutting into my opportunity you know to have it be you know human um through the course of course of hunting and so that's the way i we tend to look at it as it relates to there's no question that that the predation portion of mortality in that deer population up north has has grown and whether it's wolves i know we've got a robust bear population um you know a lot of all of the 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 predators are doing you know better now than they did you know Decades ago. We had this, we think about this period of time again when it was this peak in deer numbers up north post-World War II was was also, you know, we it was a period of time where wolves were extirpated from the landscape of Wisconsin. We essentially we had a pretty narrow window of time when wolves did not exist in Wisconsin, basically the mid-1950s to the mid-1970s, where there was essentially no wolves in Wisconsin. They started, you know, working their way back in in the 1970s under, you know, new protections and new attitudes, you know, towards tolerance of of wolves. And of course, that tolerance right now is a full spectrum of across the board from hate them, we don't want any of them to shouldn't harm any of them, and the more the merrier, and then everything in between, which is what makes this complicated and controversial, of course. (laughs) Um, But there's the presumption that that wolves are are what reduce the deer population is is understandable, but it's probably when you really get down into the ecology of it, um, it's probably not as influential as we may think or feel, because it's just natural for us to to go that way. One of the things I think, and having had my own experiences, I I hunt in wolf country. Um I've hunted in um During the muzzleloader season in Ocano County for many years in an area that's had a a wolf pack for a long time. And more recently, I've been hunting up north in Vilas County um, for the opening weekend and a little more than that of of the gun season and I've seen wolves up there as well. Um, What happens, you know, hunters gauge their hunting experience based on deer sightability as much as whether they fill their tag or not. Right? So when, when they don't see as many deer per day of effort or hour of effort as they did at one time, that's the gauge of, well, you know, the deer hunting isn't as good as it was back then when I used to see more deer. Um, what my experience has been with hunting deer in wolf country is that it not so much that it necessarily re- reduces the deer population um, to, as much as it changes deer behavior. Uh, deer are much okay. more wary, um, change their movement cycles. And, and that, from my experience in Okano County, where we could kind of tell, you know, a wolf pack has a really large home range. So they may be on one side of their, you know, 50 or 100 square mile territory. And the deer know that, uh, you know, they can sense, you know, that well, there hasn't been any, there has or hasn't been any fresh wolf scent in this, just like does they adapt to us and our hunting pressure, they, uh, um, they're going to change their behavior. And so we've seen, and this is an area that's got a high deer density, you know, where I, I'm at in Okano County and in, in the Southern part of Okano County, but we've seen pretty dramatic difference in our deer sightings per hour of effort that seem to correlate with the years where the wolf pack is on our side of their home range or the other side of their home range. So in other words, when we see wolf sign, we hear wolves. When we see the deer, they are um, much more businesslike about their, I mean, they're they're going from their, they're going from their bedding area to their feeding area pronto, uh, quickly, and not messing around and on high alert. Whereas in other years, they seem to be more casual wandering, you know, Picking around here and there, and, and um, I, I, I certainly think that wolf presence can suppress, you know, deer sightings per hour of effort, which can be interpreted as the deer are gone. Um, they've just uh, changed their behavior.
1: Yeah. So, so they're they're responding to a wolf, much like they respond to hunting pressure from sure, us, right? Sure. So they're they're possibly moving deep, hanging closer to cover uh, during daylight hours, that sort of thing. And uh, so maybe what's uh, what's called for there is a shift in your hunting tactics if you know you've got wolves in the area. So maybe you're hunting tighter to bedding. Is that
0: yeah? Or it should, or you take the good years with the bad years. <laughs> um, and and so then that that gets down to where uh, you know a lot of folks have felt that boy, it's just you know, it's been bad year after bad year after bad year um, mm-hmm. in terms of what I'm seeing for deer. And so the but the, the hunt again. You know the hunt in the north is different than it was. um no doubt about that. Um, there's hunters that go north to seek that solitude, to seek the reality that I've got square miles of land myself. And I'm glad <laughs> that the, that that's the that's a situation. And so it's not that, that, but but what has happened for a number of reasons. You going back to that that idea of what the what the historical or the traditional deer camp once was, maybe isn't anymore because it used to be, uh, you know, 20 members, and then it was down to 12, and then it's down to you know, and some of the camps you know have 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 faded away, and there's part of that is simply the demographic shift of of the hunting you know population. Um, but that, I guess my, my, my main thought there, and that my message is to the Northern Wisconsin deer hunt, which I consider myself one of, that we deserve to look forward to, um, deer hunting, you know, up North. And it's a mindset, you know, as to what you're going to expect. I mean, I, I go up North, um, fully realizing that. I might see two, maybe three deer over the course. You know, a couple of deer a day is might be about it. As opposed, if I stay home, like you were saying, I I I I, can probably feel much more comfortable or confident that I'm going to see more deer. But I'm pursuing an experience up there. That part of that experience, you know, I I know going into it isn't that I'm going to see 20 deer. Um, Sure. And and there's plenty of people that are still that are still. um, embracing that and and uh seeking that experience
1: i think we've covered that pretty well thanks for thanks for going into those two topics cwd and and wolves i know uh those are hot button issues for some guys and then uh some guys probably don't want to talk about them a lot so thanks for thanks for going down that road with me for a bit is there anything else from a from a deer um a deer herd or hunting season perspective that you wanted to cover that we haven't gotten to
0: um, I guess kind of going back to that aspect of, of, um, enhancing, um, antlerless deer harvest, uh, in those counties or where those, those County Deer Advisory Councils that have themselves, you know, found it, found it's frustrating or struggling with achieving an adequate, um, harvest. And so then it's, you know, how do we go about moving the needle in that direction? And, uh, you know, it, it does come down to, um, well, we know that the average, you know, well, I shouldn't say the average. Very few hunters, if they find themselves in a situation where they have access to an opportunity to harvest deer, um, are going to kill more than one or two deer. Um, and in some of these counties, they've got um, six, seven, ten antlerless tags in their pocket, and so the the perception becomes again well the department must just want everyone to kill all the deer because they're giving out so many you know permits um so just to keep in mind we we know up front and we do not expect that all of those permits are going to be you know utilized there's there's success rates on those that we have a history of and and the and in some cases these county advisory councils find that maybe their best marketing tool to um carry that message to hunters to say, hey, it's okay. We'd like you to you know, take more, take an extra antlerless deer, is to is to bump up that number of permits. But what they know, and what we all what we know is that um, you're not going to effectively influence that harvest on a countywide basis or unit wide basis with a handful of hunters shooting six deer. You know, if you think about that, even if it, if it's a county and there's ten guys that that really went at it and shot six deer each, you know, you've you've you took sixty deer out of the population. What you need is a thousand deer hunters to shoot one additional antlerless deer, or, or not a thousand, a couple hundred you know hunters that shot one additional antlerless deer. You've made more progress than having. So fo- focusing on the, the the image of a couple of people filling five or six tags um, really isn't what's playing out out there. Oftentimes I'll hear uh, concern or resistance from one group or one landowner that may be, oh, I'm not going to shoot any antlerless deer because I'm, my neighbor's got six tags and I'm afraid they're going to shoot, you know, too many. So I'm going to make up for that by not. Um, that scenario just isn't the way it's playing out in most cases. It's it's not about somebody over here shot six deer and so this person should shoot any. It's just getting uh, a, a whole bunch of people maybe to take one more ant, antlerless deer. And that's how you're gonna influence that harvest rate of again, getting closer to two antlerless deer for every buck that was taken. And, and the so then the next thing you run up against is, yeah, but I don't need another deer. Um, you know, we're not gonna shoot something that our family can't use. And so um, that's why for a long time, we've had in place, you know, a very structured venison um, donation program. But then in addition to that, a lot of that happens just behind the scenes, uh, much more of it. Just uh, people say, hey, I know somebody that could use a deer or would like a deer. Um, and frankly, we need to see more of that happening. And so I would, I would ask those hunters that do find themselves in a spot where Hmm, I've got opportunity. If I want to shoot another deer, I could. I really don't need another deer, but I also, they may be participating in a deer management practice amongst their landowner or the group that they're trying to uh, practice some version of quality deer management and they recognize a big part of that is uh, an antlerless harvest Proportion that again maybe exceeds their ability or their interest in taking antlanus deer. But there are mechanisms and ways to make sure that those, you know, additional deer go to good use and, and maybe put a little more time here early in the season networking with people you know. They may or may not even be hunters, but the interest in venison as a food source, because of all the interest in uh sustainable food and free range and and Um, you know, the whole, you know, this is a wonderful thing to see. And I've seen this, and I think our long term future, quite honestly, of as we go forward with deer hunting is a shift towards what I would call food focused hunting, you know, as opposed to some other type of experience. And the good thing about that is, is it's all complementary. For the hunter that is really about managing for the biggest possible bucks on the landscape, that's very complementary with the food focused hunter hunting alongside them, you know, to help, You know, again, with with taking enough animals to keep that population in balance so that the ones that are remaining are as healthy as possible.
1: Yeah. And, you know, if there's anybody listening to this that says, you know, what I'm just not interested in shooting a bunch of antlerless deer and I know I need to, but I'm just not interested. You can uh, leave me a message and I will be glad to come out and shoot antlerless deer for you. So.
0: yeah yeah well there's, there's, there's that whole spectrum of whether it's a landowner feeling comfortable allowing someone else to come onto the property you know that's a yep. big ask
1: it uh, is but it does happen
0: and, yep. and we could see m- more of that there's been discussion about how could we formalize that to where a, a, and there's there are non-hunting landowners that um recognize that ecologically maybe too many deer in their landscape, but they're not comfortable with the idea of anyone being on their land you know, with firearms, that is there a way to help them increase their comfort level by connecting them with individuals that have demonstrated a certain degree of competency um, and ethics and whatnot, that, that it increases the ability to get access to those properties, um, as well as the hunting properties where, and I've, I read, I've talked to a couple of landowners Um, that have recently said, yeah, you know, after the third or fourth deer, it just starts to become more work. It's not recreation anymore. So why should Mm. I go out there and shoot a deer that somebody else would really have a thrill, you know, and a a really amazing experience doing, I could give that to somebody else. And so we're seeing a little bit of that happening. Um, But then there's the, all right, I have no interest in shooting a deer, but I would, Love to butcher a deer and put it in the freezer, you know. And so there's that level of, of um, participation potential. And then there's the others that are, um, yeah. I, hey, if you've got some wrapped frozen venison that that is uh, uh, starting to take up space, and you're getting ready to make space for this year, um, you know, don't don't be handing off all of the freezer burnt three-year-old stuff in the freezer. But there's certainly the opportunity to say. Um, yeah, yeah, I've know people that would really appreciate some some of this, you know, protein because they don't have access to it.
1: That's a really intriguing idea. The, thinking about formalizing a way to connect uh, landowners with hunters who've, you know, shown a level of proficiency with a weapon or or you know, knowledge of the of game regulations and that sort of thing, and given the given the landowner confidence, and even giving the the um, sportsman confidence to be able to walk onto a property because man, that, that walk from your vehicle to that front door, when you're going to knock on it, that's a long walk. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? That's a, that can be a long, scary walk. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. One that I've made quite a few times.
0: Yeah. And I know hunters that have successfully, if you go into that with the right mindset that this might take 20 contacts, but with a lot of no, but there's a gem waiting there to be found that nobody else has has knocked on yet and, and those can, those can be out there. And so if you've got the mind set and the personality that you can put yourself through that, <laughs> there's uh you know, that is a, that's a valid approach, certainly. And there is a bit of that model out there already of uh, gaining, you can kind of talk about it yourself with having access to, uh, you know, county parklands, but a lot of municipalities mm-hmm. that are you know, using a hunting permit or hunting access system to manage, you know, their, their deer concerns within their boundaries, um, have a kind, you know, in some cases have a setup where, you know, you've got to demonstrate your uh, proficiency and or a commitment, which might come in the form of volunteer hours, you know, you know, put in on the, you know, to the property, and then you, you know, get hunting access because of it.
1: All right, so we've been going, uh, looks like, for almost an hour and a half at this point. So I want to I just quickly wrap up with two questions. Um, if you can look into Jeff Pritzel's crystal ball and you look into the future, the next five to ten years of deer hunting in the state of Wisconsin, you see something that concerns you and you see some things that excite you what are those things like what maybe we can start with the concerning one, so that we can end on a, on an exciting note here uh, so as you look next 5 10 years down the road what really concerns you as you look at the future of deer hunting
0: all right so i yeah what concerns me is that we we still we do have areas of the state that have deer densities that um, right now it may not seem like a problem but they are quietly eating themselves out of house and home and depending on what we get for you know weather conditions going forward um, we're going to see uh, multiple effects from both animals that are stressed and then uh, in habitats you know that that are stressed and and it may start to show up in a number of different um, ways where um, now we start dealing with we see you know deer losses due to not, not, not necessarily, you know, CWD, but a number of other stressors and diseases that can pop up when the animals um, are stressed. Um, and, and, and it really comes down to, you know, what kind of body weights are they maintaining, you know, through the winter months? And then, cause it's everything from their ability to fend off, you know, parasites to, uh, pneumonia to you know EHD creeps up every once in a while in the state. It's never been significant in the past, but um, you know that could become an issue that we you know have to deal with. You know that some of the western and southern states you know have. So my my concern is we've got these pervasive high density areas that we just have not figured out how to um, kind of shift the interest in in harvesting more deer. Um, whether it's access or just attitude or, or what the case may be
1: uh, on yeah, the positive, those, Go ahead. Yep. I was up. just going to say those, those little, those, those pockets that are like that too. I, I imagine one of the things that makes it difficult. And I think, I think Brett touched on this in the podcast that I did with him. Uh, that was episode one. Um, so you get into some of those really high density areas and it's not like they're evenly distributed across the landscape. You go to one farm and there's no deer. And then you go to the next farm over and there's a hundred deer and it's the same size property. And you look and you're like, these look like the same farm almost. Why, why are all the deer over here and not over here? Is that, is that what you've seen? Right. Yeah. I mean, that
0: can be uh, the, the issue. And, and there's, there's things that, yeah, you, it may not be evident or there may be things if you really get into it and you can say, oh, okay, well this makes sense. This is why they're, they're all over there. But yeah, this un- uneven distribution of animals um, is, has always been an issue, um, but it, it probably, you know, tends to get um, uh, even more challenging. Um, there are areas of what I guess you'd consider deer sanctuary, you know, that pop up on the landscape that are either intentional or unintentional. And it's those, it's that the proliferation of these uh, um, deer refugia, I guess, is, is oftentimes what is confounding are the ability to um, get a more even distribution of uh, not necessarily animals, but, but harvest um, because it, it just leads to the animals being, um, you know, concentrated in areas where there isn't access to them.
1: All right. So now we'll shift. What's what has you excited as you look to the future of deer hunting in Wisconsin?
0: <laughs> well, I mentioned earlier, this uh, kind of growth and interest in in food focused deer hunting. And one of the things that excites me now is how I see people with great enthusiasm sharing pictures of their um meals and pictures and recipes with the same kind of enthusiasm that they might share a, a grip and grin picture with. You know, you know, those will always still be there, of course, but but people really getting excited about um the attitude of or the the idea that this, you know the the trophy I'm really pursuing is that is that blade roast in the in the cast iron or or the uh backstrap on the grill and 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 embracing that um, because that's really to me showing the ultimate you know respect for the animal and the whole experience and, and really cherishing and treasuring what what we get from the experience when we are successful and then sharing that bounty with those that aren't successful um, as, as well to me is, you know, I just see that activity growing and, and I, I think that's nothing but good for the future.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. So now just real practical, are you going to be out this weekend?
0: Honestly, I'd have to say I probably will 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 wait for the weather to cool down a little bit. Oh, I okay. uh, I, uh, I now I might wake up inspired, but um, as I think we maybe we're talking before we start recording, but the mosquitoes in my area are just horrible right now. And, oh yeah, uh, um, it, so it takes a little bit off of the the idea of of sitting out there. But um, I I took a deer a a doe opening morning about three years ago Um, and so I and and I that was really kind of a a neat experience it was kind of a surprise it was one of those I'm just going because it's opening day and I don't really expect anything to happen but um, everything fell into place just because I was out there and so I have had some positive experiences on opening weekends. so I'll um I I know I'll be thinking about it Friday night, (laughs) honestly, I'll be watching that, watching that weather, and and if uh, maybe first thing in the morning, if it's going to be cool, um, I'll I'll give it a try, but uh, I did take a a deer in September last year, and I do like that idea of having one in the freezer, you know, early in the season, so if it's not this weekend, um, it it will be in the coming weeks.
1: Yeah, well, maybe you just get up early enough to make the game time decision. You know, that way you don't have to decide Friday night. You just get up real early Saturday morning and say, okay, are we going or not? So, well, very good. Jeff, thanks for your time. I really appreciate the conversation, your willingness to come on, and also to chat with me off air just a bit and, uh, you know, let me get to know you and things that you do. I appreciate all the hard work that you put in. Uh, Good luck to you this season. I hope you get one. And uh, we'll have to have you back on maybe at the end when some of the numbers start to come out. Maybe you can run us through what, what that looks like from uh, harvest data and that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. I, that's one of the things I really like about this is interpreting the and, and making the explanations. And when questions come up, well, you know, why do they do it this way? Or, or what, is, what does this mean? Um, I, I hope I can help, you know, just broaden the uh, appreciation of that, which then you know gives people a little bit more to carry with them, you know, on their own experience. And so I think uh, I, I wish you and everybody else the best this fall as, as well. And I appreciate what you're doing and promoting uh, really um, getting the most out of the opportunities we have here in Wisconsin, because we are blessed with um, great Absolutely. opportunities here. And, and to me, um, the opportunity to connect people with those experiences and, and have them is, is really what it's uh, what it's all about for us.
1: That's right. That's right. All right. Well, thanks, Jeff. Appreciate your time. Okay, Josh. Take care. And that's all for this week's episode. Many thanks to all of you who tune into this podcast week after week. Please share this episode with other outdoors men and outdoors women. That's the best way for us to grow this podcast and keep on doing what we are doing. Until next time, make sure you get outside and enjoy the incredible resource that is ours as Wisconsin sportsmen.